Hola, hello, hi, bienvenido, and welcome back or welcome to Mentors Today. I'm actually a little excited about using my Spanish Spanglish because I'm interviewing someone today who's in Phoenix, Arizona, which is a super Spanish-speaking city in the United States, so this is kind of fun. Actually, very intrigued. I'm always excited, but I'm very intrigued to convert this online friendship into a, an in-real-life conversation today with Jessica O'Leary. Jessica is a super talented young voice inside of our, what I call our entrepreneurial economy here in the U.S., brings a very particular perspective to life. And frankly, I just am fascinated by her. I enjoy her perspective. I enjoy her energy. I enjoy how she presents herself online. And I enjoy enough of that, so much so that I decided I wanted to bring her on the show so we could all share in this. Jessica is a former athlete, coach, a writer, a wonderfully positive person who's lived this fascinating kind of early career life in the fields of community strategy and corporate development. Notably here, locally in Los Angeles, she served as the VP of corporate development for a company called Issuance, where she helped the company through their Series A funding round and kind of helped set the pace for what they, they're becoming now. Her experience also touched, as I said already, on branding and strategy work, having worked at a company called Midas Brands in Austin, Texas. She has a really strong and frankly unique academic foundation, which I can't wait to hear more of, including an MBA from the University of Oxford and a background studying biochemistry and molecular biology. So as a result of this background, she brings this really unique and insightful, I think, insightful perspective to the world of business and our entrepreneurial startup tech VC world that we all play in so regularly. And also that plus kind of this millennial immigrant point of view. So Jessica, hello. Welcome from downtown Phoenix to Hollywood today. Thank you for having me. Very, very flattered by that introduction. And I think it's always exciting to get an opportunity to reflect and to share your story. So I'm really glad to be here. 100%. Let's, let's jump right into it. Let's hit that last theme first, which is this idea. Let's talk about your personal story, right? So you are, you're Irish. You're from Ireland. I'm Irish, but you're from Ireland. You're real Irish. I'm just, I'm American Irish. And I, I, I'm just curious, like, what's that been like? Right. We, we on our show get the for good fortune because of our focus to talk to lots of people who've immigrated to the U.S. or frankly, immigrants to different countries across the Americas and around the world. But I can say that in nearly 100 episodes, we've never had anybody talk about the story of immigrating from Ireland or the U.K. to the U.S. And so I want you to tell us a little bit about that. A transatlantic. There we go. <laughs> as opposed to some of the other more, more common ones around here. Um, I would say on the whole, it's been wonderful, in no way short of challenging. This country makes it exceptionally difficult for immigrants to land here. And that's probably a story in and of itself. But I would say I'm fortunate to be very well traveled for someone of, of such a young age. I'm Irish born and raised, as you mentioned. Both of my parents are originally from Cork in the south of Ireland, for those who are familiar, but I'm from Dublin. and. I guess I grew up kind of traveling a lot or moving a lot, even though Ireland and Dublin was always my home. So we had family in France and I was fortunate to spend a lot of time growing up there, you know, did a, a couple of stints testing out school there. My mom is very much a Francophile, so I got to grow up speaking French. Okay. My parents, I wouldn't necessarily describe them as, as frugal, but just very sensible with their income and what they really chose to spend their money on was travel. So before I was two, I had been to Thailand, I'd been to Pisa, I'd been to wow. 
all sorts of places. Um, I was on my first flight when I was less than three weeks old to Paris. So Holy cow. I feel like what happens to you in your foundational couple of years really sets the tone for your life. And I always say I'm, I'm most comfortable in the air or on a plane with that big picture. <laughs> you know, the world is below you and you can really think, I guess, is a good way to put it. So I feel like that's very much in my blood. But the move to the US was a, a very personal decision. And after spending time in a number of different countries during my studies, I think as a young person in technology, there's, for better or for worse, nowhere that really compares to the US. There's lots of the Silicon Valley of this or the Silicon Valley of that, but nowhere really compares. Yeah. Paris has a great entrepreneurial economy, but it's not the Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley of France. There you go. Um, so there are lots of great hotspots is how I would describe them. But for someone who was really not just starting out, but getting a foothold and getting a real feel for what I wanted to do, I knew that nowhere else would compare. Yeah. And so during the pandemic and a period of time building my own first company, I experienced the, the frustrations of, of operating in an ecosystem that's maybe not as conducive. That's not this entrepreneurial economy that you speak of, Rob. Sure. And I knew where that place was or where that place was most likely to be. And through being involved in the in the tech, the, the Twitter or X. Yes, whatever we, I like to call it X Twitter because it kind of is, right? Yeah. I got to know enough people through that platform informally and conversationally that I said, you know what, I'm just going to make the plunge. So wow. this time two years ago, um, the borders were still closed. I had to go and spend two weeks in your beloved Mexico before, <laughs> before moving to Austin. But that's what I did. And I did hit the ground running in Austin, October 2021. So let's tie this all the way back. You had, amidst all the travels as a child with your family, you had never been to the U.S. or you had? I had. Okay, like as a, so you had visited the U.S. as a tourist. Yeah. My dad worked for a multinational and he was always being asked to move our family to the States. And I was like, yes, let's go, let's go. <laughs> but had never spent more time than a visit. Okay, interesting. Uh, we don't talk about, we don't have to talk about ages on the show other than my age, but my, my guess from knowing you and just kind of a little bit of the research on your background is I think you're roughly my daughter's age. And I can say my daughter's age, which is she just turned 30. So I think I think you're in that ballpark of, of life. I'm in my yeah. And so I'm always curious, like, and, and there is something I am going to go back and we're going to unpack a little bit about the immigration experience. But, you know, there's the mythology of the of the typical American that thinks and most of them have not gotten outside the U.S. very often when they think this. But they think that, like, everybody outside the U.S. is just desperate to live in the U.S. And, like, we're the greatest place on the planet. And who wouldn't want to live here? And while that might have been true at various moments throughout like longer history, like it's been, you know, this last 20 years or so, so a good chunk of your life, it's carried with it a lot more weight and a lot more controversy and a lot more of our own flaws and weaknesses are, are finally in a good way coming to light, in my opinion, good way, not the opinion of a lot of people necessarily. And so I'm curious, like, was there ever a bit of that from you? Was there a bit of the, not hesitation, but like kind of a, was it just rose colored glasses as you thought about moving to the US? It was more like, hey, this is a place that probably has its flaws. Or did you just put it up on a hill and be like, that place is awesome. I want to go there. Definitely the opposite. And I will say that's 
such an interesting point to make because even still, a lot of my conversations with friends and family outside of the US almost say is tainted negatively. I think there's a lot of respect for American people and American culture, but there's also, I mean, you know, if you're an American and you've visited Europe, there's also a certain level of disdain. And I think the 2016 election cycle kind of did a lot for a lot for that reputation in in a sense. I feel like a lot of the world was watching what unfolded in the United States and even since. And I I wouldn't venture as far as to call it a laughing stock, but there's definitely a lack of understanding culturally. All that to say, we're obviously major American consumers of media, of products. Right. So there's this really interesting balance. And I think for me, my reason for moving was very defined. It was very opportunity motivated, very career motivated. I knew what I wanted to get myself into. And I knew that a place like Austin or a place like New York City or a place like LA is unique. There's only one of them. And there's a big reason people want to move to those places. I would say the biggest challenges for me in moving culturally were less the people. I love the people. I have wonderful friends and newfound family here. But I would say the biggest challenges for me have been around food and health which I kind of knew, didn't expect. I think the challenge around fresh produce is something that like I've our, felt. Our, our diet is just generally terrible. And, and, the, and, he, and the, like kind of the corporate farm, the, like the fundamental food that we consume, that's yeah. what I mean when I say our diet is terrible. Like uh, there are lots of people that eat well and fine, but like yeah. fundamentally our food is different than food in other places, which, which not, not a lot of people ever think about. Definitely. Even eating the same way is challenging just from a produce perspective. So that is one thing. And then I would say the second obvious thing to me personally is gun culture. That's something that's really difficult as someone who didn't grow up with it to wrap your head around, you know, the actual mass shootings, the drills, just the concept that people want to be armed. It's very, very different. And, you know, when I'm at home, I don't fear someone pulling up beside me <laughs> and, right. and taking out a firearm, but you just never know here. So I think that's a little bit different. Those are two pretty big fundamental things. I mean, like food, yeah, <laughs> but like safety and sustenance are pretty fundamental things. How have you, like, I've never really thought about either in my life, even when I've traveled while I, in Mexico, as you know, or in Latin America, again, self-aware, keep your head on a swivel, you know, don't walk around with your bling and your phone hanging out so people are, you know, cash, like, you know, be sensible. But I've never thought like I was under threat. And again, part of that is also I'm privileged, white, way above average size. So like kind of always, you know, they're probably not going to mess with me versus the other 27 people around me that they could pick on. But I never really like kind of thought to myself, about that but but it's it's an it's been a challenge for you you definitely adjust and i feel like you adjust pretty quickly but i would say that i underestimated the cultural adaptation because like you say when you go to india or for example i've moved and i've lived in spain you know or you anticipate the differences whereas having been to the u.s many times before i didn't anticipate those fundamental shifts. Sure. Like Spain, Spain, they basically, you you have to learn just to slow the fuck down. 
<laughs> like, hey, take a nap. Like, just relax. Like, we're not in a hurry. Ironically, when I worked in Spain, I had that like preconception, and I actually learned that it was totally the opposite. Like, yes, think of time off, but I have never been in a more hardworking place. And I would describe France differently, but I would start work before 8 a.m. and I would finish work after 7 p.m. Yeah, the late the later part is familiar to me from Latin America. The whole like after office, right? After office or what? And that just is like, a, or they just don't leave work until like, same thing in Latin America. Like I'd be like, okay, it's like 6.45. What are we doing, right? Why are we still in the office? And they'd be like, oh, cause we're just gonna go from here to have a couple of beers at, after office with the mates. And I'm like, when do you see your family? Like, when do you go home to see your kids? Oh, you don't do that until like one in the morning, four nights a week. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's a healthy relationship with your family, okay. It's fascinating, it really yeah. is myself for the you know the working environment differences and I had prepared myself like I knew what I was getting into in terms of let's say like a political environment so those things were less of a shock to the system but yeah I mean when your like body suddenly changes and you're like whoa I'm eating the exact same as I do at home and you're like actually I have to readjust a couple of things here that was fascinating but I do think a lot of American people also forget how enormous your country is, cultural differences. I mean, you can talk about the Midwest, you can talk about the Deep South, you can talk about the coastal cities. The people and the cultures and the environments are totally different. So there's a lot to be learned within the borders as well. No, I would agree. I mean, in, in like in our worst, worst, worst versions of ourselves, I've often said in the last handful of years as, as things are more polarized and difficult politically, I've, I've always said, we would never slip backward into like the 1800s version of a civil war that people like have in our minds because of our own past experiences where it's like North against South and people with gray jackets and blue jackets. I'm like, we would basically balkanize like Europe. Like we would literally just break into the regions that you just described. And so the country would like would disintegrate into essentially five kind of both politically, culturally slash geographically aligned regions because that's what we were before we were a country, right? I mean, I, I, I say often, just because of my own context, like here in Los Angeles, I'm in Northern Mexico. And I don't say that as a dig. Like I say that as a compliment to the true depth of history. And also as a testament to like present day demographics, because actually, if just based on just legal documented Mexican Americans that live here in Los Angeles, Los Angeles would be the second largest city in Mexico after Mexico City. Wow. <laughs> that's and that's like to to most people they're like, whoa, that's crazy. And I'm like, but it's not if you if well, that's you were, your lived experience. If you right. spend and, and if you're conscious of the fact that a mere, you know, 240 years ago, which to Americans is like unfathomably forever, but to the rest of the world is like a like a preteen, right? Like the 240 some odd years ago, this was Mexico. So, so when you have that context, and I, and I think to your point, like you, you came with a lot of that context, right? Just because of your own travels. So second thing I want to unpack, and it's important, we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but I, I am curious, you said right in the get-go, right? That the country makes it difficult for immigrants to, to immigrants to essentially onboard themselves here. Talk about why that is. Yeah, I found a lot of camaraderie with other people in our entrepreneurial ecosystem going through the same experience. I think um, the recent 
challenges and the recent backlogs are associated with the Trump administration, like cutting down on staff, followed by the next administration, not really ramping anything back up and then COVID, right? So everything is, in terms of processing true applications, everything is super delayed and on the back burner. But also I think that's the way the country has decided to to run their ship. It's it's to keep things tight, to keep doors, relatively speaking, closed. Hesitant to say this because I do think it requires a certain level of privilege, but if there's a will, there's a way, you know, you can figure it out. But I'm two years into my time here and it's still not all solved. It's a work in progress. Yeah. No, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I asked not to expose your personal circumstances as much to just kind of highlight the issue, right? Yeah. Because it is, it is a, it is a, and, and I have, it's my show, so I get to share my opinions, um, right? It is a, it is a fundamental flaw in our system culturally, right? And, and then because of the cultural flaw, it become, it has become the political flaw, and we desperately, desperately are in need of massive immigration reform and comprehensive, better policy making around it. We have somehow, and I understand this because I'm a weird social anthropology nerd. We've somehow, like, fantasized ourselves into this notion that we weren't all immigrants and that we didn't colonize and take someone else's land to make this our own, and then therefore we don't need to have anybody else to come behind us. Like this, just nonsense. Because the truth is, like, what the next 50 to 100 years, 150 years of the country will be if we last that long, will be built on, like, opening the doors and and having reasonable, thoughtful policies about how we can empower people to come here and bring their best ideas and their best energies and their best efforts and their, their hard work and toil. Yeah, I'm a bit of a purist in the sense of, I lean back to that, you know, give me your huddled masses and your poor and that is inscripted at the bottom of our Statue of Liberty in, in the harbor in New York City. Like, I am, I am that. Because no matter how privileged and white and American I am, fourth generation from, you know, people that emigrated from Europe, the truth is, like, we all came from somewhere else. And so to make it inherently difficult, which, as you said, and I love the way you said it, it is a choice. And it isn't, isn't it's a right or a wrong one that becomes, like, of opinion, but it is a choice the collective is making. And... I think we're living through a period now, and we will probably for the next decade or so, our lack of appreciation or understanding thoughtfully about the implications of that choice that we've made for 50, 40, 50 years, 60 years, basically post-World War II, is going to have a cost. And we're coming up, we're running out of all the excuses for what that cost is, is, whose fault it is. But like, eventually when we run out of those excuses, we will wake up and go, oh, shit, like we did this to ourselves and now how do we rapidly fix it? And that's that's obviously not an easy thing to do. And I think to be specifically helpful for anyone that's listening, the most common routes that I've seen in my time is the H-1B, which is possibly going through some reforms now, the O-1, which is for exceptional individuals and then family-based. They're the most common routes that I'm seeing people around me take. So if anyone would like to chat about that, find me. I'm more than happy to, to speak through my experience. That's awesome. I got to give a shout out to your parents. You've, you've explained kind of the motivation for like the how, why you wound up here, which is fascinating. But I got to give a shout out to your parents like because they were they're probably not much older than me. And yet there they were way before the internet and they were all about like, let's invest in experiences versus things, 
I mean, I'm sure you had the things that you needed to have in your lives, but like clearly they were investing their sensible use of their resources, as you described, shout out to mom and dad, like in a way that was fulfilling their life with joy and adventure, but was essentially shaping yours, or if you have siblings, like your, your kids' lives. That's awesome. Like, like what is it about, are, are it way too much information? Like, are your parents still alive? Are they still together? Yes. And then, and then yes to both of those. So like, what was it about them? Like, why have they ever explained to you, like why they lived that way themselves and why they raised you guys that way? I think it comes from their own curiosity. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to have two incredible parents and incredible relationships with them that I, I just love them so much. I think it came from themselves. So they were both incredibly hardworking, um, didn't come from families that globally traveled necessarily. Yeah. Okay. So they, so they weren't, they weren't like, like generations of this, like they were kind of initiators. Exactly. So they're both scientists originally. My mom is a microbiologist. My dad is a PhD chemist. And my dad, they took totally different routes. My mom became a high school teacher and my dad worked with Hewlett Packard his entire life. So very fascinating that they did their work day in, day out, what they needed to do. And then thanks to my mom's extensive holiday calendar, we would just go, we would take off. That's awesome. She, she was living that high school teacher's life. Absolutely. And we all were, you know, my dad would allocate his days when he was a younger manager and that got a little bit more flexible <laughs> with seniority and we would go. And I've never really asked them so much how they decided where we would go. I think I've more just seen now as I plan tri <laughs> trips with them that were older, that it's very much a case of, oh, this is interesting. This has been on my radar. Let's go. That's awesome. And, it, and it's incredible. I credit so much of my worldview and my demeanor to having been exposed to so many different cultures at such a young, such a young age. Um, I think I have a huge level of respect for other people of all different walks of life. I've got, uh, I speak four languages and I feel as though that lends itself to a lot in terms of being able to approach problems and situations, but also linguistically. And I'm just so grateful. Yeah, no, there's, I, it's awesome. I, I hope to someday meet your parents because they sound like awesome, really smart and very just good people. Hey, shout out mom and dad when you listen to this from another proud dad of a daughter, a girl dad, you did a good job. So, so great job, parents. That's, that's, that's just a wonderful story. And 100% double down on the notion of travel as kind of the gateway to, to humanize us, right? I, I think it is, it is, it injects, especially if you do it repeatedly over, over a series of period of time in your life, it injects human empathy in a way that I, I think very few other things can. You know, there's that, and, and you and I have a very online relationship to this point, but, you know, there's that whole kind of meme kind of theme around, you know, it's harder to argue with someone or hate someone that, that you're like standing in front of one-on-one, -on -one, 
it's very easy to do it online with, and even when not, not anonymous, like it's very easy to just shout into the void at people, but it's very difficult. Even with you, if you put someone who has starkly different views than you or, or lived experiences than you, if you put us one-on-one across from each other at a, at a coffee table, it is very difficult to hate. Well, it's so easy to forget, especially online where you're limited to a certain number of characters that we all have such vastly different experiences and not just different experience, but that our worldview has been shaped by what we've lived through. So although you and I might have staggeringly different viewpoints, we have them for a reason. And although I might disagree with your viewpoint, I have to first respect it before we can even discuss it. I'm with you. That's fascinating. It's awesome. All right. So you took this exposure and you you have literally lived, not just traveled to, you've traveled everywhere, but you've lived in Spain, you've lived in New Zealand, I think. Now you've been living here in the US. Like not so much what has that taught you about the journey, but like what has that taught you about you? What have you learned about, get a couple lessons you've learned about yourself in living, being from Ireland, going to school in the UK, living in Spain, living in New Zealand, living in the US? I think... I learn not just something, but a lot of things everywhere I go. And I think the most important thing that I've learned in all of these places or or the greatest gift that all of these places have given me is that they hold up a mirror to yourself because different environments bring out very different sides of you. And I think as a young person moving through life and I think your 20s can be a very turbulent time for a lot of people in life. Yes. You know, if you went to school, navigating a 20-year education where it's all quite defined and then moving into whatever may come next and having to unlearn and relearn. And it can be very challenging. And I know a lot of people in their early 20s who have suffered mentally as a result and then later come out the other side of it. I think the greatest learning for me has been related to multitudes, that there are lots of different sides of me as a person. And I don't necessarily have to define myself or put myself in a box, that it's okay for me to lean into different elements of my personality and what I enjoy and what I don't enjoy and loving and honoring like the different parts that different environments bring out in me. And I think what can be forgotten as someone who has spent time in in different places is that um, it can be really challenging to not put down definitive or or long-term roots. And I mean, lots of people debate the pros and cons of like having a home and spending a lot of time in one place or moving from place to place. And for me, it's never been a case of, I want to be on the road the entire time. I think um, that concept or that idea of home has has haunted me quite a bit in terms of physical location. For me, it's definitely more about people. Like you mentioned, my parents, I have a younger sister, friends, etc. As someone who really loves and values her relationships, um, virtual is just not the same as having that. And I guess this has kind of become a little bit of a, a meandering answer. But the biggest learning is that it's okay. It's okay to have different phases of life. It's okay to prioritize different things at different times in your life. It's okay to have 
a season in a certain place with a certain focus and to move on to the next when the time is right. And for me, what I feel like this has done is it's only sharpened my sense of self and my sense of what it is that I love and I not only find comfort in, but I'm challenged by, et cetera, in terms of taking that next step and finding, quote, unquote, a home base. I'm always going to travel, but I think a home base is is cool or a nice thing to have. <laughs> no, and I'll, it'll, I'll sound really corny when I say this now, but I, it sounds like part of what you've learned is that the home literally is, as it says, like where the heart is, right? So, so as long as you've got a strong sense of self and you're comfortable and feeling safe and uh, allowed to be express yourself and explore yourself, then eventually that leads you to experiences, I think maybe leaning on your, your parents' approach to life that will, that will create home for you. And home may physically wind up being in a number of different places over a period of time, but you're you found you you're finding your center. Whereas again, the typical maybe Western approach or just the typical human nature is to like seek out that spot, right? That physical piece of land on the hill and build your hut or your village. And and that doesn't necessarily have to be the only way you experience it. I'm I'm curious, because you've been pretty public about adversities that you faced in your young life. I'm curious if the the multicultural experiences and the and the diverse geog- geographical experiences have also informed some of your own resilience and some of your own is it given you has the experiences of being in different places and having to adapt and having to learn has this fed some of your own strength which then has given you the power to be resilient when you have faced adverse circumstances or situations in your life? I think 100%. I think um the biggest tool in the armor is probably adaptability. Two things, I would say adaptability, three things. (laughs) Adaptability, being resourceful, and then also being humbled. Adaptability, when you're traveling, when you're on the road, when you're in a new place, when you're trying to figure out a new place, you've got to figure it out. You walk into the supermarket, everything looks different. You want to make friends. The social scene might be very different. The cultural scene might be different. The norms, the activities, (laughs) what you get up to probably look different. So I think leaning into and enjoying all of those various different things is important. I think the most underrated one that I would mention is probably the being humbled. If you rock up in a new place and you don't know anybody and you don't speak the language, you find yourself almost naked, like you're stripped of all the things that you normally have that make you confident and feel like yourself. And when you're in, for argument's sake, I did a semester in China during my master's, when you can no longer communicate with someone, you no longer learn, like can take the bus. Um, That's humbling. You've got to learn and you've got to find a way and you figure out your sign language and what it is that you have in common and you make it work. And I think that resourcefulness, which was the third thing I mentioned, that making it work is such a phenomenal life lesson that is so valuable in everyday life, but also very much in a career sense. Yeah. 
and and when 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 bad things happen to us or tough times befall us if you've got those three principles kind of built into your dna experientially you can as you said before you can find a way through you can you can you can find the will to 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 get to the other side you're able to differentiate what true struggle is yeah no that's awesome all right so professionally as we kind of finish this chapter here uh, like why are you not a scientist I am not a scientist because I wanted to play the long game. And I still consider myself a scientist by by training, first and foremost. I mean, that's what I mean. Like, you literally study biochemistry, molecular biology. Your parents are both scientists by training, although your mom has taken to use it as an educator. Like, why, why, did, you, why did you wind up being tech, business developer, business builder? What, like, why are you not just a scientist? Because I think that science in itself is fascinating, but I was never cut out to be a researcher and to learn something for the sake of learning it. For me, where things got really interesting was how do you apply the science to the people? And in a roundabout way, I guess that's what I'm still working on, or that's what I've learned through my entrepreneurship journey. To me, I found the cutting edge and the latest research fascinating and i'm still an avid research or an avid research and avid reader of the latest research and where it gets really interesting for me is that intersection of how can we take this discovery and apply it to our world or apply it to people's lives to have a favorable outcome and to give you an example i can take this to medicine i was one of those kids that was interested in in the health biotech biochem space and I was encouraged to go into medicine not by my parents but by others and for me I had no interest whatsoever in working in that world because I don't like what it looks like right I don't like what the pharmacy industry looks like I don't like what the healthcare industry looks like and that's not because it's not important I just think that the incentives and the way we go about doing it is is quite misaligned and I feel as though doctors are some of the most important people in the world, but as a doctor, it is, it's a reactionary game. You are treating people, generally speaking, who are already sick and you're making a huge impact on their lives, but you're helping somebody in a one-on-one -on -one setting. And what drew me to tech and the tech world is that if I could find a way to take the science and the things that we were learning and apply it to much broader groups of people in a preventative sense, and I'm not talking about preventative medicine, I'm talking about things like just general well-being and a focus on health, well, then a lot of those people don't become sick in the first place. Right. And I take the principles and the great success of technology, which is a very small group of people having an incredibly outsized or disproportionate output. And I think that there's room, a lot, a lot of room for those two worlds to, to fuse. And for me, I felt as though I had not honed my craft because in science you're always learning, um, but I felt as though I had learned those skills enough to want to develop my commercial or business skills, which was why I took the very intentional career step 
Yeah, the th- the things you've worked on. Essentially, this this most recent chapter, and that's all. It's just a chapter in your long book. Very much that, so. you'll, that you'll have. So, okay, that's awesome. That really like illuminates a bunch. Is yeah, you develop the commercial skills. Like, so hey, I kind of knew I had the science skills. Again, always learning. We'll always be researching, but I had a foundation that was science based and kind of a set of exposures, experiences that were science based. But I like. I could develop the commercial side of me. And then coming out of that, now I'm more powerful, more capable, more influential. Yes. And at some time in the future, I know that those paths will converge in some way. Yeah. No, it's, that's, it's very thoughtful of you. I have a great empathy for you and people like my daughter and the generation that's going through this, because I think that the vagaries, as you say, leave so much more to be defined because I think, frankly, you guys are growing up in like a macro period of massive transition that we're not quite recognizing is happening. <laughs> no. And I think the way I would describe it, it's very easy for me to sit here and to articulate a story and to be able to look back and ask Steve Jobs to join all the dots and all the dots make perfect sense. Right. Since I was in college, in university, I would say the entire past 10 years has just felt like being lost the majority of the time, right? Because it is so unclear. And I think we are so blessed and so cursed in this age that we're living in because we've been opened up to this world of endless possibility, endless options, endless career paths, endless life paths. I mean, you could draw the parallels in dating, for God's sake. And I think we're faced with, or our generation has become saddled with this optionality paralysis that has led us into this state of being lost because even when we've got a good thing going on, all of the other things still exist. So there's a sense of uncertainty around, oh, have I made the right decision? Or, oh, would this be better? Oh, the grass is always greener. And I think the most important thing or the best advice that I could give a young person today is that aspect of trying or of putting in the effort. Yeah. Because when you saddle this optionality and this paralysis around that with the cultural side of social media and instant gratification and crazy overnight success, we kind of get lost in this zone of, oh, I'm so lost oh, things aren't going well for me. Oh, I haven't made a million dollars by 25. I must be doing something wrong. And it leads into this shell state that so many young people find themselves in. Almost becomes like this this vortex of, like you can't get out of it until you're out of it. Yeah. And I think what flips that switch is trying and putting in the effort. Just try try stuff. I mean, not to hypersimplify, but just... Like just, if you if you need to try and get out of the vortex, one way or a major path to get out is just to like reach out and just try something. Well, what hasn't changed in all of this time is hard work. Because by putting in hard work, doing anything, literally anything that is a signal to those around you. So that reflects well on you, that garnishes your reputation in so many ways. But also, it's really fulfilling to work hard on something and to know what you've done and to be able to stand behind it. And that can be anything from like signing 
like multi-figure deals in New York or sweeping the streets. Like it doesn't matter what you are doing. Yeah. As long as you're showing up and you're putting it in. And you did like you, you showed up and you tried in the fintech space, you showed up and you tried in branding and corporate strategy. And like, and so you have, as you said, you, your personal mission was to, to strengthen and build up your commercial skills, like the commercial side of you. But in doing that also, and being your age, going through this journey, like you were, you were just out there trying, right? And so invariably, you built new relationships, you learn new skills, you learn things that, that you didn't like, which I always say, I said I said this to my 15-year-old niece all the time. I'm like, most of high school and college is just to figure out the stuff that you don't like and the people that you don't like and the places that you don't like. I was like, because then that'll sharpen, to your a metaphor from earlier of the mirror, like that'll sharpen your sense of the things that you do like, right? And then it's, then it's like, you just eliminate the things and you kind of focus on what makes you happy. That's definitely the case for me. As someone who is endlessly curious, um, it's very easy for me to fall down rabbit holes or to run in, in multiple different directions sure. often at once. And being able to shut off some doors is equally, if not more helpful than opening them sometimes. Okay. Last big question. Um, You were at one point in your vast life experiences so far, literally refers to yourself on your LinkedIn as a futurist uh, with this organization in New Zealand. And here's why I care about that. Talk to me about two things, kind of the next five to 10 years in your life. And I don't want to, not outcomes, not like, oh, Rob, by 35, I'll be this. Like, I don't care about that. But like, what kind of explorations do you foresee for yourself? Right, like what kind of what kind of an adventure do you foresee for yourself over the next five? Let's just call it your thirties, right? And then, if you can, after we talk about that, give me kind of your futurist. Like, what does the world look like fifty years from now? I'll be here all day. Um, I think in the, I'm going to call it the immediate midterm. I see, I see myself creating some sort of home base. Because as you said, I've, I've lived in a lot of places and I've done a lot of things. I think what's been so beautiful about these two years so far in the US, as you mentioned, I have worked in three different roles. I have met countless people, but already in that short period of time of two years, the strong relationships the ones that hold are becoming clear and becoming evident to me. And I'm able to recognize what those people are like, how they make me feel, and I'm able to lean into that, even if that's a specific place. So I think what I have not done in my life thus far has been to seek out comfort and things that feel good. I've definitely always been chasing the next thing, chasing the next achievement, chasing the next challenge, chasing the next whatever it might be. So I think the muscle of comfort is a very difficult one for me and slowly learning how to play. You were an athlete. You were a competitive athlete as a young person. Like you're, as I was when I was younger, you're you're built to be a hunter. Yeah. So you're, you're constantly hunting the big game and the next game and the next challenge and the next t- season and the next championship and the next win. And and now now maybe you're going to get into, it sounds like, kind of like, let's be a farmer. Like, let's, <laughs> let's, let's plant and let's harvest and let's water and let's nurture and let's 
watch the sun grow our our, our plot of land and yes thus far i've always been either going at like 120 or less than 20 <laughs> um very much like go hard go fast like or take or take a nap <laughs> or fully have to take a step back yeah and i think that creating like you said something that's more sustainable like going from the 100 meter sprint to the marathon is is definitely what i'm working on that's awesome i love it i can't i can't wait to see 40 to 50 mile an hour jessica every day like I can't, I can't, like just a consistent, like driving through like the suburban speed zone person, not zero, not 120, because we already know what 120 is and, and zero is, is just self-preservation mode. So like, I'm, I'm excited to see like the 35 to 45 mile an hour, like just outside the school zone type of speed. Yes. I recoil at the thought of that. Like it's very- Of course you do. It's unnatural. Yes. Trust me, I, I, as much as I always desperately, when I was younger, I desperately wanted to be older. I always did. Like I was never at an age where I was sad. I was at, like the next milestone age I wanted to be. And now I sit here at 55 and I'm like, oh man, I just want to be this for however, God bless, willing 30, 40 years I got left. I just want to be exactly this. Like, cause this is just this pace and this is awesome. So it takes a while to get there though. Um, all right, so the reason I ask you the 50 year question, I'm not going to let you off the hook on that is, because we could have a whole separate podcast about this because you and I have a lot of fascinating things in common about our political ideologies and our interests and, and those types of things. And so I, I at least want to get a teaser out of you because you're 50 years from now for you, like you'll be at the latter stages of your life, right? 50 years from now, I'll be dead, right? And so, so like, I want to know what the people who will be responsible for the world that will last beyond me are thinking it will look like then. So I would love your perspective on what do you think the world, not your life, so this is more macro, culturally, societally, structurally, like what's it gonna look like 50 years from now? I think it's fascinating because as somebody like yourself who works in the tech space, we see a lot of the new technology as it's arriving. Um, and we see all of this crazy progress and we kind of, live through it, right? I came of age as we moved from dial-up and wire phones to what we live with now. And here in Phoenix, where I've been for the past year, like Waymos are the norm. They are passing every day. So I think so much has happened so quickly. And I think the pace of technological development is only going to accelerate. I don't want to use the buzzwords, but when I think of artificial intelligence and machine learning, there is so much that can be changed. And like, we've had that for the past 10 years. We've just had a sudden acceleration in progress. And I think that will slowly start to touch lots of different parts of our lives. But we're blindsided by our own viewpoint and our own world to the sense that when you travel to lots of places all over the world, basic mobile phones with buttons are ubiquitous. Um, that's their norm. So we forget that the rate of change globally is so different and it's so drastically different. And I think 
distrib- distributed distributed unevenly, as I always say. Exactly. I think, unfortunately, we're in a current state politically and technologically where we're getting more and more polarized. And unfortunately, I see that going further and further and further to the extremes. My hope is that with all of this development, there becomes a general sense of uneasiness and a general want of actually what makes us great and what makes us human is people. And like you said, sitting down and sharing a drink of coffee, water, whatever it may be, and conversations and storytelling. And I notice online that the things that do really well in terms of like posts and virality are those things that make us us. It's like, oh, I cooked a meal with a loved one and we had a wonderful time. Or, oh, look at my baby. (laughs) Like, this is amazing. Oh, like I sat down and I had a conversation with the eldest person in my family on their deathbed. And it's those real human moments that still stand out. And that's because that's what makes us us. And I think, I hope that as we advance so rapidly, that we almost come full circle and we advance so rapidly that we want to be brought back to what makes us us. And I'm going to give you a second answer. Whilst we're on it, I think my area, like you said, of expertise or my origin is is scientific. And I think this might be a fun forum to share an idea I had a number of years ago that I've done absolutely nothing with, but is technological. I struggle, not struggle with, everyone is surrounded by, especially in America, like a health crisis, right? An obesity epidemic, a cardiovascular disease situation, and that's not even to tap into all of the other health issues. I think that culturally and to do with taste, to do with our emotional relationship to food, I don't think that we'll have large scale change by putting people on diets and totally transforming the way in which we eat. We can work towards that and we can hope for that. But ultimately, like there's a reason that fried chicken is great and <laughs> tastes so good. And, tastes pretty good. Yeah. Folks love their candy. God, I feel I feel personally attacked now by the way that that's coming. <laughs> but I think that that's behavioral and behavioral change is so, so, so difficult. I think the advances around like sensing what we're eating and what we're putting in our bodies, like actual tiny biotech devices are really interesting. And I, my, my futurist take 50 years from now, I don't think the science is, is there to create something like this yet. I can foresee us having some sort of device that resides or lives in our bodies in some kind in our intestinal tract that is essentially a glorified sieve or filter for literally like a physical governor for what we put into our bodies. Wow. So I, I, cause I thought you were going to head in the direction of like, if you can make take like chocolate cake taste bad to my body and make green beans taste good. Like you're on, you're, you're on fire. You will have literally, you'd be like the Jonas Salk of the next 50 years. Yeah. I think what will change. And I think it's, that's super sci-fi right now, but because the sensory technology has to be developed, yeah, 
Like, is it? Like, is it really? I mean, it's super sci-fi like today, but also like 50, I mean, 50 years from now, right? I mean, that's, I, I so I, I, I wonder what you think about this. I, we won't belabor this too long, but I'm, again, this could be a whole separate conversation. So I've said a lot lately, I say it online every once in a while, my framework for like kind of the, where we're at in time right now. And again, it's my life experience. So born in 1968 is I think we will look back the, the history books, we, the collective will look back and we'll say that there was a period, like an exceptional period of, of massive growth and evolution of humanity from 1970 to 2020. And then there was this like intermission period right now defined by this pandemic, much like the pandemic that happened a hundred years ago affected the, that period of time in their late 1918 to 1920s. And then we'll have this intermission and then there will be this credible period from basically 2025 to 2075. So, so the history books of the of seventy five to one hundred years from now will look back and they'll go like, oh yeah, that the world was like kind of this way and it evolved that way, and then there was this massive break and this kind of weird intermissionary transitionary period where all the everything was unknown and up for debate, and then there was this other period of again change. Now, I'm not necessarily saying relative stability or exponential, but I, there will be exponential growth just because of what you said, like the the technologies, the science, the research, all of those things that were either born, discovered, or refined from 1970 to 2020 will now be like unleashed. Yes. And therefore their rates of growth and, and uptake, so to speak, and understanding will be accelerated. This period of time will look very rudimentary. Yeah. And, and then just in my narrow context of the US, I always say, when I ask the question about 50 to 100 years from now, my, I always frame my answer with like, again, very narrow US context, like, if we make it through the next 10 years, <laughs> like if we make it through the next 10 years and again, not like make it, woe is me. Like the country collapses and disappears. Like that doesn't happen. Portugal's still a country, even though it's not a superpower anymore. Spain is still a country, even though it's like, so the U S balkanizes and becomes basically just a great place to visit, which is what those other places that were once great powers in the world were. Right. So we don't disappear like as a country or as a group of people, we just would be dramatically different if we don't make it through the next 10 years as we have been constructed for the last 245. But it's uh, it's a fascinating time. And again, I, I, I spend today with you and I invest this time and you invest this time, thankfully, gratefully, because you're going to live longer than I am. And so I care much more on a daily basis about what you think and about what my daughter thinks and about what people younger than you guys think um, because it's going to be you all that are going to have this thing that we've lived in and you're going to have to do better with it, right? You're going to, if you, if we live by my mom's credo, you all are going to have to take what I've tried to leave a little bit better before I leave for what I found. And you're going to have to then build upon it, make it a little bit better than what you got from us. And so I'm, I'm grateful for your time and talents. All right. So last fun part of the show and this is a tough one because we've talked about a ton, but if you could condense down and just get, share three pieces of advice to people that are listening, and it can be about anything you like, but I would love to just kind of condense down three little bits of Jessica wisdom. I'm going to keep them on, on theme and draw them from our conversation that we've had today. I think the first one is the lesson that I've the greatest lesson I've learned this year, which you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, which is presence, being truly present where you are in 
what is going on around you with whoever it is that you're experiencing that with, the greatest gift that you can give yourself in that moment and the people with you is to be there. You know, not being anxious or worried about the future or racing at 120 to find the next thing. And obviously at certain times, like taking moments to reflect and to appreciate, but true presence is challenging. And I think it's worth investing in. I think you also, you had a really nice phrase as we discussed my life and the holding up of the mirrors. And I think that is all around finding your center. And I think the greatest thing that you can do at any stage in your life is, is try lots of things and, and put yourself in uncomfortable and new situations and even show up with new eyes in familiar situations and find your center, taking time to be quiet, taking time to step away from what's not working and what's not feeling good. Not necessarily doing, just being, often lets that come to you. I think in a world of noise, the quiet. Just be, you don't have to do something, you don't have to do 24 seven, just be. Just be, and a lot of the time or in my experience with that feeling lost sense, you actually do know the answers. They're just a bit lost in whatever is going on around you. So just be and let it come to you. Um, and then the final piece of advice I would say is just ask, put yourself out there. The only reason that I'm in this country right now, doing what I'm doing right now with the life that I lead right now is because I've asked. I have thrown myself out there. I have made audacious asks. I've made tiny asks. What's the worst that can happen? It'll get you comfortable with saying no. <laughs> People saying no. If you never, if you never ask, you'll never know. That's awesome. You know, a lot of people do podcasts or shows and they will say, like, of all the super successful people that we've interviewed, this common theme has jumped out. And one of the things I love about this show um, and our intentionality behind it is that we are interviewing people that may happen to be successful, whatever success means to them. But really, more importantly, of all the really good people that we talk to, the common theme that jumps out to finding your way to being a really good person is asking for help. That pops out probably more than any other, which is um, which is awesome. And again, for you and I, and I only reference age as a context, as a compliment, um, not not as a not as a diminishment at all. But um, you are in the early chapters of your book of life, and and having said that, to have the the level of introspection and thoughtfulness and general just sense of self that you have already, like. God bless you. That's uh, fucking awesome. I mean, it's like, you know, on the hard days, be proud of yourself that you know that you have this foundation. Obviously, you've got Matt, you've got a great family, you've got good people around you. But, you know, hey, we wake up and we go to sleep in our own minds by ourselves every day. And so I know during the hard times, like if you can just always remember. And now I'm literally going to give you an audio transcript of this that you're going to be able to listen back about yourself on your hardest moments, right? And, and I, again, like, this is just awesome. I'm grateful for you for spending this much time together. I, I didn't say to you when I invited you, but you and I were talking a lot about your writing in the last couple of weeks. And, and that's a gift that you have. And I love that you've decided to share it again. 
because it'll only get better and your gift will get sharpened um, because as you say, you're, you're going to try, you're going to put yourself out there. You're going to just literally just write. And one of the things I did to you was as a friend, we were going back and forth and I said like, why do you want to do this? Like, why do you want to write? And so quietly to myself, as we were readying for the show today, I, my aspiration for the show was that we should look back after it's published and, and it should be basically just a verbal audio version of your writing. It has really felt that way. So, yes, mission accomplished. It's super conversational. It's super This is just a really long blog. That's what that is. That's is awesome. Um, so I'm grateful because that was my mission. So I like, again, thank you. Like, I think you're terrific. You know, I'm a fan. That goes without saying. I'm grateful that the internet brought us together as, as new friends. And I look forward to knowing each other now. I consider this to be in real life, not in person. But now that we are connected by face and voice and we can feel each other's energy, I fully suspect I'll be around as long as you keep me around. And we'll be grateful for every bit of the journey. And I'm always here to help. So with that said, let's tell people, how can they find you and your writing online? Or if, if there are places on social media that you wouldn't mind connecting with people, like where are the best places to find you? Right back at you. This conversation has been so much fun. And I'm grateful for you pushing me and encouraging me also. Um, if folks are curious, I am relatively active on X Twitter, as Rob calls it. My handle is, is Shamafia, which is a story for another day. So that's S-E-H-M-A-F-I-A. And I don't have my notifications turned on. So if I'm busy... That's, and By the way, that's a healthy life choice right there. Yes. So if, if I don't get back to you instantly, that's why. But I do spend a lot of time there meeting great people like Rob. And I have tentatively started resharing my writing. As Rob mentioned, it's a skill, it's a craft, it's something that I've loved doing my entire life. And I'm, I'm slowly sharing it with the world again. And I have decided to try out Beehive as a platform. So Beehive. Sorry, Tyler Dank is going to be pissed at me that I said Substack before. Yes. Uh, so it's Shmafia, same spelling, S-C-H-M-A-F-I-A dot beehive dot com. Awesome. That's great. Um, and Tyler's a good guy. And that's a great, that's a great LA company. Um, yes. so I, was on, I was on Substack before. Yeah, that's um, what I thought. I've, tried the, I've tried them all. I've done, done a personal blog, but I think... I like Tyler and and I'm liking the community over at Beehive. So I'm going to awesome. And I can't wait to see some some writing on the intersection of science and technology and the future and what I like. I want to start to see that part of your brain exposed in your words. Um, so I'm I'm excited. I'm in an excited subscriber to the, the to the Schmafia Mafia. Um, I'll, I'll say it that. So this is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for the push. As always, we thank you so much for listening. Today's show was recorded in Los Angeles and produced by Deanna Bernal in Mexico City. You can always find, like, follow, subscribe, and share our show via any popular podcasting platform, as well as find us on social media at Mentors Today. And if you'd like to connect with our host, you can find Rob at I am Rob Ryan on just about any social media platform. Gracias and thank you.